So this is um, basically what um, what I wanted to do is to tell you a little bit about this um, um, book project that I've been trying to do with this woman who's a, she's a very a friend of mine uh, and she's a gypsy woman uh, who I met when I was doing my fieldwork for my PhD in 1992 and we have been friends and she has worked with me as a gypsy informant uh, for whatever it is, over 20 years now. Uh, and she, um, we had this sort of friendship or collaboration for so many years. And then we started working on this specific collaboration project together. So changing from being a standard sort of anthropological relationship to being a, a, collabora a proper collaborative project. Uh, in 2009, uh, when she eloped from the gypsy community with an with a, with a illegal uh, Moroccan immigrant who was 17 years younger than her. So she was in her early 40s or uh, late 30s, and she left two young children behind. And um, I helped her emotionally and financially to do this, so I gave her quite a bit of money so she could actually es escape from this gypsy community. And the project basically was prompted by this terrible sort of upheaval in her life and by my role in this in this thing that had happened. And um it, it and it, it came out as a as a kind of partly as a life story and partly as a reflection on our relationship and it's not finished and I will explain it should be finished and I will explain why it's not finished. So what I wanted to do when they, you invited me to come over, I thought, well, this is a good opportunity to think about, about this project and to sort of evaluate it a little bit. So this is what I, I tried to do with this. So the aim of the project was to produce a collaborative, non-hierarchical and reciprocal life story. So these were kind of the three things that I had in mind. So what does it mean to say collaborative, non-hierarchical and reciprocal? And as you know, sort of this sort of drive towards collaborative anthropology uh, as an ideal model. The point is to sort of decenter the anthropologist authority and to produce, uh, to have anthropologists and informants sharing in planning, implementation, and even dissemination of research. Now, within this kind of broad collaborative sort of ideal or sort of diffuse thing, what we wanted to do, I think, is closer to what this guy called Eric Lassiter calls collaborative ethnography. And I'm quoting him. He says, a collaborative ethnography, he says, is a kind of ethnography that builds on the cooperative relationships already present in the ethnographic research process and endeavors to engender texts that are more readable, relevant, and applicable to ethnographic collaborators. And what I wanted to do was to, you know, from sort of alongside of what, to what he says, in the project, we try to do two things: to do collaborative writing, that is to write together. And sorry, this is a photo from when I was doing my fieldwork in 1992, and uh, this is Lydia and Mia in the present. And uh, um, sort of, and this is her writing. And so she's kind of semi-literate; she can write. And you can see that there is a punctuation. There's actually a full stop somewhere over there, but. It's very laborious. She only writes in capitals, and she put, will put words together, and so on. So it's, quite hard, it's really hard work for her to write. So collaborative writing uh, we, on, is one of the things. And the other one, writing that is dialogic, but also accessible. Um, so that on the one hand, 
we expose our experiences and our voices that come through, but also, like Lassiter says, the language is, is free from the highly speci- specialized discourse of academia. So this was more or less what we had in mind. And uh, we also wanted to sort of emphasize, um, we wanted to do kind of this reciprocal dimension as well. So in a way to take the, the sort of the reciprocal relationship that takes place, so the, the dialogue that takes place in the field, carry that into uh, the writing as well. And uh, Elaine Lawless, who's a folklorist who writes about collaboration, she talks about uh, this kind of reciprocal dimension, and she says the exchange of ideas and meanings is reciprocal. We learn about each other, and no voice is privileged over the other. And this notion of not privileging any voice over the other is partly what we had in mind when we were, what, what, well, more me than her, as I will explain. Now, one of the things that uh, to me is very clear is that the whole idea of collaboration and the notion of reciprocity in anthropology, both of them are very idealistic and they have this kind of programmatic dimension. So it's kind of a, uh, it's kind of a, um, like a quest. Or, yeah. So they have these very idealistic and programmatic elements to them. And of course people who do collaboration say it not, it's not a size fits all for anthropology. But still, there is very much the notion that the language of collaboration and the aims that collaboration proposes sort of to undermine the authority of the, of the anthropologist or to produce uh, sort of accessible or open texts and all, or so on. These make collaboration a kind of ethical, they give it kind of ethical, political or moral dimensions to collaboration, yeah. Um, and um, um, so, for example, Bonilla, who's this uh, anthropologist, uh, Colombian anthropologist, already back in the 1970s, he, he has this quotation, which I think uh, is quite extreme, but it kind of summarizes the kind of a general ethos of why people think that collaboration is, is a good thing, so to speak. And he says that, uh, and why it should be sort of ethically or, or politically desirable. And he says, the researcher himself is an object of investigation. His ideology, knowledge, and practice are judged in the light of popular experience. And the exploitation that occurs when people are studied as research objects is abandoned, leading to a respect for them, their contributions, their critique, and their intelligence. So this is kind of a starting point for people, sort of, the kind of, the, kind of almost taking for granted idea about what collaboration is. What I have found is that uh, the collaborative reciprocal ideal is extremely problematic and difficult. And what I want to talk today is about these problems and difficulties that I have had trying to do this collaboration. If you think about reciprocity, for example, which clearly is not just something that takes place in collaborative work, very often when you read life stories, in anthropology or sort of dialogic work. It's kind of a, you know, many people claim to do, to, to, to engage in reciprocal work with an informant. Think about Karen Brown with Mama Lola or Ruth Behar uh, or, I don't know, Tuhami, uh, Moroccan dialogues, all these different things, yeah. All, in, in all these different works, uh, the, the voice of the informant may be very powerful, may be very skillfully conveyed by the anthropologist, but in the end works to sort of support the status of, anthropolo- of the anthropologist as an author, the distinctive theoretical contribution of the anthropologist to the discipline of anthropology. And the voice of the informant is subordinated to this need of the anthropologist to produce, the dis- to, to become like a, an auteur, a, a distinctive voice in the discipline. 
And of course, it's a discipline that the informant cannot engage with. And this happens even, I think, when there is co-authorship, like in a book that I was telling that earlier called Telling a Good One by Sanz and Rios, where Kathleen Sanz talks about failing to write a collaborative project with, with uh, Rios, who is a Native American man. So not only sort of there are these problems of sort of the, the, the authorial voice, but also in this kind of so-called dialogic or collaborative or reciprocal, reciprocal work uh, in life story, or, but in collaborative ethnography more broadly, very rarely is the life of the anthropologist open to the scrutiny of either the informant or the audience in the same way as the life of the anthropologist is open. So you go to the field, you might tell your informants things about yourself and so on, but the level of scrutiny is by no means the same. And the, the life of the anthropologist is definitely not open to the audience either. So um, the subject-object field academy sort of divisions that the collaborative sort of ideal wants to undermine are still present in this kind of dialogic work and so on. Now, what I wanted to do with Lydia was to try perhaps a more radical form of reciprocity. And, and I say try because I don't, I'm not sure we are managing it. And the book that we're writing follows her life, sort of more or less a structure, like a standard sort of life history in a kind of chronological way from her childhood to the present and so on. But... Uh, because our lives are so closely intertwined and have been so closely intertwined for so many years, we also talk about our relationship and my own life. And both of us write, and we are co-authors. And it's interesting in a way, our lives sort of have lots of points of similarities and come together in many ways because we were born, we're exactly the same age, we were born in the same city, uh, but we are kind of uh, uh, in... 20 minutes away down the highway, but I was born in this very comfortable middle-class neighborhood, and she was born in a gypsy slum. Um, so we talk about the similarities, the differences, the contact, the distances, and so on. And she's a typical informant. She's open. She talks to me. I've recorded interviews and so on. And she opens her life to me and to the reader. But we also make my life, my perspectives, and my story also visible in, and open to scrutiny by, by her and by, and by the readers. Uh, and this is partly because I'm interested, or we are, I'm particularly interested in the kind of informant anthropologist relationship and in how that gets put into a text. But also because working with gypsies, I've been very fed up with, with the way in which gypsies are usually represented as being, gypsy lives are represented as existing in isolation from non-gypsy lives. And I think that looking at the ways in which our lives come together and are part of the same urban landscape shows that, in fact, there is a much more sort of blending of gypsy and non-gypsy lives. And so... But also, since we met each other, from the beginning when I was doing my fieldwork with Lydia, she came to my fa visit my family and so on, and especially since she eloped from the gypsy community in 2009, she's come to visit me in Scotland, she's met my colleagues, she's done a kind of brand of fieldwork, if you want. She's taught with me in the university and so on. So she's seen, I mean, and I was very worried, for example, about what would she think that I had a lot of money. The typical worries that we have as anthropologists opening getting your informants to come and live with you for, say, a month in your house and things like that. 
So she writes about what she's seen about my family, about myself, and all these things. And we try to give our two voices the same space, the same authority, and the same importance in the book. So we're trying to write this book where we speak to each other as we do in real life and show how the process through which I have come to know her is the process through which she has come to know me uh, and try to see if we can produce this kind of open, more egalitarian text and balance my authority as anthropologist by her authority, by her voice. And um, partly we decided to do this because... uh, um, it was a result of the circumstances, the fact that I had, we had been very involved, I had been very involved in her life. But also because when she left um, the Gypsy Committee, she was desperate for money, I helped her, I didn't know what else to do. And then I asked my department if they would let me use my travel budget to pay her to write her life story, uh, to write her life story by way of finding some money. So I had 600 pounds left in my travel budget, and my head of the department said, yes, you can use them to pay this informant to write down their life story. I never thought I would do anything with that life story because I was working on adoption at that time. But once she started writing and I saw what a good writer she was, it just felt, it almost happened, oh yeah, we'll do a book together. So the book is a kind of, uh, is a, with this kind of reciprocal agenda in mind and so on, and trying to do it in this sort of more, sort of a hierarchical way, what we do in the book is we use this kind of a patchwork of letters that we've written. We have letters that she's written to me f- since we first, since 1993 until now. My letters to her were lost when she left the Gypsy Committee. So this patchwork of letters, conversations, monologues, texts that she has written and that I have written and so on. Uh, and we, we're hoping that this is going to be like a blend of memoir, life story and ethnography. And we use different fonts. Uh, to highlight our two, our two voices. Now, in fact, although this sounds like it's going fine, this has been a really horrible process in a way and very frustrating. And I have felt that it's a really ethically sort of trying to produce this collaborative, reciprocal, hierarchical, non-hierarchical, egalitarian project. It has proven really paralyzing intellectually and emotionally quite difficult as well. And, uh, and I, I, what I want to do is, is to talk about these problems. And I think there are two kinds of problems. Some of them have to do with this very um, <coughs> idealistic or utopian or programmatic aims of collaborative anthropology uh, to produce accessible texts that are also scholarly. Uh, and that uh, um, do sort of to produce these scholarly, accessible texts and to do it through non-hierarchical working relationships. And it seems very simple and it's been quite difficult. But also the problems that I've had, I think, have to do with, uh, with, the, with kind of the encounter between our project and the expectations of, of ethnography as a genre. So the ways in which, in which collaborative ethnography is framed by the genre of ethnography in anthropology and the fact that the aims of the two of collaborative anthropology and a sort of published ethnography don't really align. And some of my problems I come, from, from, come from the kind of interstices between those two. Um, um, so in a way, sort of, I've been really wanting, uh, at, in the end, I'm not really sure that, 
I mean, one of the things that I wanted to try to do with this project was to see, can we write ethnography that is open and accessible to the people we write with, to we, we, write, we, we write about? Can anthropology make its texts more accessible and accountable? And, and, and in a way, I have found that yes and no. So, so this, is, this is what I, I'm going to tell you about. Now, instead of reading from a chapter, which I thought I could just read you from a chapter, what I have done is I have chosen three kind of problems or difficulties which seem really simple. Everybody, I mean, once I tell you about it, you think, what's the big deal? So the three problems are really not very complicated. But once I sat down in the library trying to work them out, they proved quite difficult to resolve in a way that was satisfactory. So what I think is that in the end, the story of this project is in a way the story of a compromise and, and sort of not meeting anybody's needs, not meeting the needs of the academy, not meeting the needs of Lydia, and so on, and being caught in the middle between these conflicting demands. Uh, so what I want to do in a way is I want to show you what the collaborative project looks like and reflect on it from the outside. And this is strategy, in fact, it's quite common because very often people who do collaborative projects they do their collaboration, everybody is very egalitarian and lovely, and they manage to question, the, you know, to challenge the ethnographist authority and so on. And then they go and they come here or to another seminar, and then they write a paper that the people they have been collaborating with cannot understand, cannot read in a different language, and so on. In other words, collaborative projects are very often deployed as data for anthropological consumption and for sort of this very high, highly reified debate and analysis. And of course, one of my preoccupations writing um, this book is the fact that, as you will see, this, this framing of the collaboration by anthropology as a debate in which the collaborator cannot really participate, it happens within the text as well. So the same thing that I'm doing here, I'm doing my collaboration with Lydia, I tell you about it, she's not here with us. Uh, and then that same framing happens within the text. And it feels very uncomfortable because you are going against the, the egalitarian collaborative aims that you devised to start with. So in the end, one of the things is whether this framing, uh, Rappaport, Joan Rappaport talks about this consumption of the text, of, of the collaboration by the, the discipline. And she talks about being, she uses the Spanish terms, and she talks about being an anthropologa or anthropophora, an anthropologist or a cannibal, yeah, and the, the boundaries between the two. So uh, this, this, uh, this tension between the aims of the project and its consumption or deployment as data, I think, has to do with the problem of audience for collaborative projects in anthropology. And it's the problem that Projects like ours, on the one hand, you know, they have to meet the expectations and the needs of very different audiences, including our needs, my and Lydia's needs as authors. So on the one hand is the needs of the academia and my needs and hers as, as, uh, as a consultant or, or, or a collaborator, the communities and sometimes even a, a generalist audience, and let alone sort of ref or whatever. So lots of different people have an investment in it. So all the time I struggle with thinking, can academic anthropology of the one of the can I have to produce as somebody employed by a university? Can and which has to be inscribed, it has to be written and published somehow. Can it ever be a conversation which is really open to the people we, we work with? 
should it be open? Should anthropology not retain some kind of esoteric knowledge that we have built over many decades? Is that bad? And what is gained and what is lost by this consumption, uh, sort of, by, by, through this openness of anthropology? So when you open anthropology, you try to write in a, in a very open, accessible way. What do you gain, but what do you lose when you do that? Yeah? And what about collaborative reciprocal work? What do you gain and what do you lose by doing this stuff? Can you ever, if you are doing the work that I'm doing with Lydia, can I avoid margin, can I avoid sort of um, uh, um, producing knowledge that excludes Lydia and that marginalizes her, for example? How open and how accessible does collaborative ethnographic writing have to, ha, has to be and how academic and theoretical? And this is really what is collaborative writing for uh, and who is it for? And these are all kind of questions that when I sit down in front of my computer, right, you know, they feel uh, quite difficult to resolve in the practice. So the three problems I want to tell you about, uh, are the first one is thinking about how to address the discipline of anthropology in the text. And this is very simple, but has driven me crazy. The second one is how to build a narrative that is engaging and is satisfying, and to do that in a non-hierarchical way. And the third one is how far to take reciprocity, uh, how to transpose reciprocity from real life into the text. And like I said, this is really about compromises uh, in the end. So to start with this relationship between the collaborative project and anthropology more broadly, one of the things that I have struggled and with this view of this consumption of the, of, of the collaboration by this discipline and so on, uh, one of the things that I have really struggled with is how to address the discipline of anthropology in our book, in what form and to what an extent. And this means trying to work out what is a book for, for whom is it, is it for me, is it for Lydia, can it be for both, for Rev, and so on. And the first excerpt that you have, I thought I would put in those on the PowerPoint, but they are quite detailed. In the first one, you can see how Lydia writes about her aim of, of why does she do this. And she really likes the idea of writing for anthropologists. It's an extremely exotic sort of endeavor for her. Educated people in another language and so on uh, is very appealing and interesting. And she also has this notion that she wants to write for the world at large. She wants people to know her story in a very vague way. Yeah? And on the other hand, I need to publish, and I need to publish work that is recognized as academic. And we're not really writing for her community, the gypsies, but like some people do, you know, we're writing for the, this community or that community. Uh, but we hope that some of her friends and her family might be interested in at least some parts of the book. So in the first chapter of the book where we lay out what is it that we're trying to do, um, this is how she talks about it. So she says things about it's a very beautiful work, anthropology is a very beautiful work that opens frontiers onto other worlds. And she has this notion that what we're doing is very different because a gypsy and a non-gypsy have, you know, she thinks that it transcends boundaries between gypsies and non-gypsies and so on. Yeah? But she also talks about how anthropology transforms her. So as I do this, my understanding of the world also changes. Now, when, uh, so this is all for the introduction to a book. So when I started writing my own section to complement this thing, sort of explaining 
the project as you do in the introduction to the book, I thought I had sort of several options. The first one is to say, well, uh, I'm going to do what anthropologists do in introductions, which is just to talk about our project, how does it addresses, how does it address debates in life story, how does it fit in with this author and that author, the kind of thing that you do, yeah? What is it about knowledge or collaboration or whatever, yeah? You usually do it in a normal way. And that would have quotations and references. And that felt really uncomfortable because it would make big chunks of the text of that introduction and inaccessible and meaningless to her. So it would detract from this kind of reciprocal aim of the project. So I thought, okay, this is not going to work. So I, the other option is what is I thought uh, it's, it's what you um, what you have in the in the in the next sorry no the next option hold it the next option was to say okay I'm going to do the opposite I'm going to write as accessibly as possible. There's not going to be there's going to be nothing in the text that she cannot understand. So there's going to be no jargon, no quotations, no references. And I'm going to explain this thing in two paragraphs in a very, very simple way. In a way, it had to be as simple as a first-year lecture or simpler, yeah? Because the only book that Lydia has ever read, apart from this one, is the Bible, yeah? So she's never, she doesn't know what a book looks like, the beginning, middle, end, nothing like that, yeah? So that's what I did. And what happened is that people didn't understand at all. So uh, my colleagues, for example, when I circulated drafts of these to people, they were really unhappy because there were no quotations, there were no references, and people kept telling me, you must do something. You have to have an introduction. You have to, okay, if you don't want to put it in the text, can you not put a preface? Can you not put an epilogue? Can you not put big footnotes at the bottom? In other words, they kept framing the project within anthropology as a kind of outside frame. And that, as a kind of as a conversation that would somehow utilize or explain what, what what we were doing, and that also didn't feel right. So what then I did next was the next excerpt that you have there, which was to try a kind of middle path, yeah, where I would write quite simply, uh, in a kind of uh, making sort of in a, as simply as I could, and and there uh, it, and there are sort of bits there where it says ref, yeah, so. Um, where you can see, so I basically I wrote simply, but I said things that people who were not familiar with anthropology would not understand. So things like, for example, fieldwork is portrayed as an ethnographic journey of discovery. Yeah, that doesn't make any sense to people who don't know what you know. So, so this also doesn't feel right. Yeah, so there's no references and no quotations here. Uh, so that it makes sense to Lydia. It doesn't look strange with lots of sort of uh, brackets and things like that. But, uh, and Lydia and I, you know, she, we've read it, she understands everything, I've explained everything. But, um, and, and we kind of, I thought, well, we will rely on the knowledge of other people so that if I say field work is a journey of discovery, you would remember without having to put it in brackets, Malinowski saying, you know, I landed there and you know, you would know, you would make your own connections without me having to make the connections for you. And uh, in the end, it feels extremely, like it, it, this was a, it's a compromise that doesn't work because it doesn't meet her needs, like I said earlier, it doesn't meet the needs of the colleagues and so on. So this is like a very small example that shows how there is nothing that I can do, I feel, that will resolve the question, this particular problem. Uh, so that's kind of problem number one, uh, which is really about uh, 
people who, if you write, if you want to write collaborative ethnography or life story, how do you do this in ways that are academically significant or relevant, theoretically innovative, blah, 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 and at the same time fully accessible to the consultants? Uh, so that's uh, one of the one of the questions. Now, something is that anthropologists who are collaboratively argue a lot is that in order to do this thing of enabling the, the subaltern to speak, you've heard this sentence, yeah, in order to make, to, to enable her to speak, we as anthropologists have to surrender authority. We have to find more egalitarian ways of working with our informants during fieldwork and during writing up. And so uh, very often people say things like, and this is a quotation from, from Georgia Curran, who's an anthropologist writing in this journal called Collaborative Anthropologist. Yeah. And she takes a very common standpoint, and she says that the different kinds of power dynamics involving collaborative work, which, and then she says, results in multiple voices emerging in the ethnographic material, producing a much richer form of, eth of ethnography. So the idea is that if you do collaboration, your ethnography, somehow you will have this multivocal text with many voices, and it will be a richer form of ethnography. And I have found this equation between non-hierarchical working relations and a richer ethnography extremely naive and impossible or very difficult to achieve in the practice. And this is the second problem. And on the one hand, partly, you know, of course, there's all these problems that people talk about when they write about collaboration, the fact that you have to stop being an expert or, and you have to become a facilitator. For example, Lassite uses that thing, yeah? that expression. You have to shift the role of the researcher from expert to facilitator. And th this is challenging on a personal level. And yes, it is challenging because your training pushes you in a different direction and you want to, to do, you know, you know what the final product should look like and things like that. But I think that rather than just for sort of personal sort of resistance, there is a big, there's a kind of imperative uh, uh, for narrative flair in anthropology and for, um, which really is an imperative for expertise or authority which goes beyond, which is like an institutional or disciplinary sort of imperative. And this is a notion really that if for anthropological texts to be valuable, that is for them to be published, they have to be scholarly and theoretically innovative, but they also have to be beautiful. So we have to write these amazing texts which should be hard-hitting and should be lyrical and, you know, think about California University Press, you know, uh, all this, like uh, Vita, for example, have you read Vita, yeah? For example, a beautiful, amazing book, yeah? So this is what sets the standards of excellent excellence in, in the discipline. And Paul Stoller, for example, has this uh, quotation where, she say, where he says that good ethnographies, and this is really the good ones, are the ones, he says, essentially describe the physical attributes of the ethnographic locale and sensitively construct the character of the people who live there. So that's good. But the memorable ethnographies, he says, they must grapple with the things most fundamentally human, love and loss, fear and courage, faith and compassion. So you can write average ethnography, you can write good ethnography, and you have to write in this very sensuous way. But if you really want to write memorable ethnography, then you have to grapple with this, you know, Dostoevsky wouldn't be good enough. Yeah. So if you want to be published by especially one of the uh, big North American houses, you have to write books that are lyrical and hard-hitting at the same time and theoretically innovative. And, and, and this literary imperative, of course, is not just within anthropology, but also affects the what collaborative texts can look like. 
uh, even if the aims are, are very different. And I think they limit their roles open to anthropologists and informants. And when we had about three chapters, I was feeling so insecure about this that I sent them around to, to a couple of publishers. And one of the uh, publishers in, in America wrote back to me, he was really nice and very encouraging, but the quotation, but he, the thing that he said, you know, I think it's quite revealing. And he said to me, at the moment, he says, it's clear that the structure of the ethnographic experience is tightly in your grip, and I thought that sounds good, uh, and you are displaying a mastery of the elements of, the, of your story, what events are key, the nature of your collaboration, etc. And then he says, but mastery of the elements, even mastery of the chronology, is not the same as mastery of the narrative. Yeah? In other words, it wasn't gripping enough. You know, we, it, wasn't, it wasn't either not gripping enough or it wasn't fluid or sensuous. And he says, what you must do, you must read Elena Ferrante. You know Elena Ferrante, who's this amazing writer who's everywhere. You know, it's like, wow. She's very extremely famous. Yeah. What the fuck? It's never going to work. Uh, Elena Ferrante, she writes amazing, very widely acclaimed comments. And I thought that it was, you know, it was interesting that he's, he's this guy assessing a collaborative project between an anthropologist and a semi-literate or almost illiterate gypsy woman. Uh, and he is choosing two words, narrative and mastery. Yeah? Uh, not just narrative, but mastery. And mastery, what is mastery? Expertise and authority, which are like the two enemies of collaborative anthropology. Uh, and of course, it may just be, hey, your chapters are not good enough, and I agonized over this, as you can imagine. But I think that his comments also raise the question of what criteria we should apply when judging collaborative work together. Uh, and I think that according to this publisher, and I think to other people, the skill in controlling the ethnographic genre is as important or more important than what the collaboration itself might say to the audience. So it's is, is, is the, this narrative form. So what then should reciprocal, non-hierarchical ethnography should look like? And for me, this has meant really making decisions about how we work together and so on, uh, what role each one would take, and in particular, it has really highlighted how difficult it is to have egalitarian working relationships, because in the end, I'm the one with some sense of what this mastery might be like. It's like Obi-Wan Kenobi or something like that. It's, this elusive perfection. Uh, you know, I'm the only one who has some sense of what it, it, it might look like. And to start with, our plan was to share editing and decision making and so on. But in the end, it's really difficult to have this distinction between, for me, being a facilitator and being an expert on authority, uh, really uh, enabling Lydia to reach an audience and saying, no, it has to be like this. And of course, many anthropologists have this. Anybody who works on a life story, you know, Ruth Behar talks about hacking and hacking and hacking at the life of Esperanza, yeah? But I think that if you're trying to do reciprocal work, it feels quite pressing, yeah? And the next excerpt that you have there, it's from one some of Lydia's letters. So we had all these letters that Lydia had written. And this excerpt is from a letter that she wrote in the early 2000s when, when her mother was dying of cancer and her relationship with her husband was going very badly. And she has, you know, so we've got letters from when we were both, say, 23 years old until we are in our 40s. So this is one sort of from the middle. And she has a very powerful voice, immediate, and I think it really conveys the experience of being a gypsy woman and her suffering and so on, yeah? 
and we chose which ones to use, which ones we would use together. And, and so, for example, some she thought people would be bored or they would be irrelevant or whatever. Uh, but, but were they sufficient in their own? Could we have a chapter just made of, of letters with nothing else? Would, would uh, readers uh, follow kind of all this stuff about, about gypsy society? Would they understand how much, how much should we say about the individual characters and so on? How could we turn these letters into a masterful narrative that this publisher wanted from us? And masterful for whom? Yeah. So we did different things. So, for example, I asked Lydia that she writes paragraphs framing the letters so that we would explain. So it wouldn't be just the letters and me telling the reader about the letters, uh, but it would be uh, sort of rather than me analyzing the letters, how could we use this sort of reflection on the letters in order to highlight the reciprocity of our relationship? So she wrote about the letters and I wrote about the letters. And the next excerpt is a little bit of what she wrote about those letters, yeah? And you will see, if, if you look at the excerpt, is, so some of the excerpts, the first one uh, where she talks about anthropology, I've edited that. I've put punctuation and I have removed repetitions and so on. But this one I haven't touched at all. So this is another thing. If you publish a letter you don't need to edit it because it's a record of something that was. So I, I don't put any punctuation or anything. But what to do with her voice when she's reflecting on the letters? Can I just put this? Very often she does two things. One is that she just writes a long word that continues page after page. And the other thing that she does sometimes is she mixes, puts two words together. Yeah? For example, so should I respect that? Uh, should I add punctuation? Should I correct her, 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 or, or sort of her mistakes, her spelling mistakes, and so on? Yeah. So, um, because what happens with her voice when it's an analytical voice? Um, so, sometimes I feel like I'm her ghostwriter. Uh, you know how, and in the end, these are decisions that we can discuss together. But they come back to me because I'm the anthropologist with the expertise and with the knowledge of how to do this. So then I ask, okay, uh, expand a little bit more. And the next excerpt is when I tell Lydia, okay, this is not enough. I think it's not enough. We need a little bit more, yeah. Because of course, when I say write a little bit of commenting on this letter. You see, it's me telling her write a little bit commenting on this letter. So already there is a kind of hierarchy there with me telling her what she should be doing. Then she writes another little bit, which basically repeats what she's already said. So the next excerpt is a repetition of what she said already in a slightly different way. So what do I do? Do I blend the two? Do I make a more, you know, do I choose the best sentences on each one of them? And so on. So these are all, uh, uh, in, in a way, because I cannot avoid by being the expert, so this kind of burden of reciprocity, it's with me, not with her. So I'm the one who has to transpose this reciprocity in daily life, and she calls it complicity. She says we are accomplices. So this complicity, I have to transpose it into a narrative reciprocity. So you have caught between being a collector of her life story, being the editor, between the narrative, the transcribed narrative, and the audience, and so on, but not within the standard sort of aims of anthropology writing a life story, but with the supposed aims of writing a reciprocal, hierarchical, non-authoritarian life story. So those two problems, basically, that I've told you about already have to do with this, how anthropological conventions frame this attempt to make a, a, 
this reciprocity or this reciprocal construction of knowledge, not just a matter of experience in the field, but of text and of analysis. And uh, the fact that the project is kind of meant to be dialogic and reciprocal makes the issue of authority more problematic rather than less problematic. So very often when you read the stuff on collaboration, it appears like egalitarianism, it's an automatic thing. And my experience is that that's not the case. So instead of being a good in itself, uh, reciprocity is a headache for me, at least. And I'm not even telling you about the issues surrounding reciprocity in the field. Things like money or whatever, but uh, just in the text. Um, Joanne Rappaport has written, who writes about Colombia, has written quite a bit about um, reciprocity. She uh, sort of she talks about reciprocity as being, she says it's being looked atness. She has this sentence that she borrows from this film critic called Ray Chow, being looked atness, and she says this is a fundamental element of collaboration, forcing the external ethnography to look, ethnographer to look at herself, just as indigenous participants do. And, uh, of course, you know, reciprocity is difficult in any project, in any sort of uh, collaborative project, but I think it's, uh, my hunch is that it's a little bit easier if you're writing about, say, like Lassiter does, evangelical songs, or, you know, like Carolyn Humphrey, uh, shame and knowledge. But when it becomes, when you're writing about your own life, it has its own problems, and this is kind of the third problem I want to tell you about, what it has involved to open up my life for her, and not just for her, but for her as a vehicle for an audience. And that has been a very stressful part of the whole process. And the chapter of the book where these implications of taking this reciprocal approach have been hardest for me uh, is the chapter where we talk about our childhood and our teenage years. And this is when we are exactly the same. Remember, we, we are the same age. And we structure this chapter around two conversations where we interview each other. So in one I interview her, and in the other one she interviews me. And we talked about we talk about her uh, very unhappy marriage, very abusive arranged marriage by her parents to a man when she was age 15, to a cousin, first cousin of her mother's, who was much much older than her. So that's partly, and who was also a heroin addict. So she's 15. She's married to this guy who is a very abusive husband. That's her story. And then my side of the story is growing up in this very dysfunctional family and including this experience of being sexually molested from the ages of 11 to 16 by a friend of my parents. And we are the same age, and these things are happening in parallel. Yeah, uh, And uh, we have had versions of these conversations several times over the years that we have known each other. And what we do in this chapter is we each one explains this period of their life or her life to the other and to the audience. So we do what anthropologists always do, is we take ownership of the other's life, but we also reflect on the experience of being known by somebody else at this, in, this, in, this, in, this, in this chapter. Now, the process of sort of reciprocity is not reciprocal, it's not completely egalitarian because she does tend to reveal more than me, I'm more reserved than she is. But it's very important to our relationship. I mean, we are part of what we do is we talk about this stuff, and we've had versions of these conversations, perhaps you know, several times over the 22 years we've looked at each other. So I told her about my life, just as she told me and shown me her life, 
but I worry a lot about including my life in the book. And I think my worries reflect a larger issue in reciprocal anthropology, which is how far to take this being looked atness that Rappaport looks at, and what role it should play in the text as opposed as to in the field. And of course, there's lots of anthropology books and lots of life stories and straightforward ethnographies that deal with things like domestic violence or gender inequality through the lives of people like Lydia, which are poor women, perhaps from the third world or from the first world. And we as anthropologists expect this. I mean, we expect to go to the library, pick up a book about whatever it is. And not only that, but when we go to the field, I think we almost measure our success as ethnographers by how much people reveal of themselves. Yeah? So the more people reveal, the more deeply they open their lives to you, the more they tell you about the more painful things in their life, the better we are as anthropologists. So this is what our, our, our treasure that we bring back from the field, our conquest. Yeah? But what about my life? Isn't it private? Should I even have told you about it here? I mean, I agonized even about putting it in this paper. Yeah? What would you guys think when I said these words? Yeah? Uh, and this comes to the value, to the issue of value again in reciprocal work, because on the one hand, the value of her vulnerability is obvious. Yeah, her hardships are valuable in themselves because she is the informant and she's a poor gypsy woman, and we don't have to justify writing about her. That's what we do. But what about my vulnerability and the value of my vulnerability? And Ruth Behar makes it very clear. Yeah, when an anthropologist has made him or herself vulnerable and has made their suffering or their pain or their fear or whatever it is made visible to the readers, the stakes are high. She says, a boring self-revelation, I'm quoting here, a boring self-revelation, one that fails to move the reader is more than embarrassing, it's humiliating. Yeah? So I'm there in the library listening to this tape where I'm telling Lydia about these things and transcribing and thinking, in fact, it's going to be boring, it's going to be humiliating, what's going to happen, you know, it's awful, awful experience. And then she says, efforts at self-revelation flop, flop. Imagine, flop. You hear this word flop and you know your effort at self-revelation is going to be one of the ones that flops for sure, you know what I mean? Flop, not because the personal voice has been used, but because it has been poorly used, yeah? So uh, the problems that I've discussed already of uh, narrative mastery and theoretical innovation become even more worrying in this context of being looked at of emotional reciprocity because it can be okay to write. You might not write the next whatever prize, ethnographic prize, about the woman who was married to an abusive husband, uh, but it's not okay not to write in a masterful way about our own sufferings or about our own vulnerability as anthropologists. And no matter how essential that process of self-revelation might be in the field, it must be hidden in the text if it cannot be done skillfully or if it cannot be done well. Uh, and Beha, again, uh, uh, reinforces, I think this, this, this depiction, I think, reinforces this distinction between the object and the subject in anthropology, between informant and anthropologist, which is the whole point of undermining this distinction is what we're meant to be doing in collaboration in anthropology. Uh, and implicit in this statement is, is this notion that the two roles, the observer and the observed, uh, have to be kept well distinct in ethnographic writing. And, and I think that her statements, in fact, reflect a kind of commonsensical understanding in anthropology. It's a kind of shared notion that we have within ourselves. And because I have taken both, I have been sort of socialized as an anthropologist. They're part of my worldview as well, so I've worried about this. 
And as part of this very aggressive, really terrible attack, a very scathing attack she has on anthropologists who fail to display their, their, their sort of vulnerability in, in a sufficiently skillful way, she says that self-revelation, she says, has to take us somewhere we couldn't otherwise go. It has to be essential to the argument. And we decided, why did we decide to tell this stuff? Well, because we thought that our stories, particularly when they are told together, they have significance because we think, and here I'm justifying myself, we think that as Spanish girls, right at the end of the Francoist dictatorship, when you put our stories side by side, you see things about gender inequality and about patriarchy and so on, cutting across class and ethnicity that you wouldn't see if we'd told just one of them. Yeah? So it's about continuities between gender inequalities and all this kind of stuff. So for me, in a very theoretical way, it demonstrates why this reciprocal approach is theoretically, it's relevant, why the benefits of using this approach. Now for Lydia, of course, this is completely irrelevant. And for her, these moments are important precisely because they are full of drama. It's the drama and the pathos and the unhappiness that is important. And she sees them as moments that shaped completely the direction of our lives, our way of being in the world, who we are as individuals. And not only that, but she sees the fact that we trusted each other and we told each other these stories as what makes us in our story. So the fact that we had the trust and the, the, that we could talk to each other in this way, this is what makes our friendship valuable as a relationship that breaks down the boundaries between gypsies and non-gypsies. So for her, is the act of telling and of listening to the story that is important. And you don't need to justify it any further. Very different than from, from Ruth Beha. So for me, this process of opening up to Lydia and in the, in then through her to the audience, just like I'm her vehicle, she's my vehicle in a way, has highlighted very much this tension between reciprocity as experience and the representation of uh, in the text, in a collaborative, in a collaborative way, and has highlighted it in a very personal and stressful way. And because I think, because I've been confronted with the way that these these expectations of the discipline about privacy and disclosure, about object and subject, knowing and known, and so on. By the way, these expectations frame the way we expect anthropological texts to look. And therefore, not just any anthropological text, but also collaborative texts as well. Even though the aims of collaborative texts are not exactly the same as non-collaborative ones. And the fact that I know this stuff doesn't make it any easier or less uncomfortable. So part of the problem is the gaze of the audience, but there is also each other's gaze. And this is the other one that has been really uncomfortable for me. Because writing this has been very, quite difficult for me because her interpretations of my life are very different from my own interpretations of my life. And sometimes I don't like them at all. Uh, and this raises for me the issue of the different the status of the different kinds of knowledge in reciprocal work uh, and their visibility in the text. And... Uh, for example, the next excerpt is from a conversation we are having. Now, Lydia, uh, okay, I'm not going to say it to this, but, I'll, but anyway. So in this chapter, in, in this section of this chapter, this is the conversation where she's, take 
this is the, uh, the bit where she's interviewing me and she's asking me about my sex life when I was a teenager. And she wants to know if I had sex with lots of boys. So she's saying, and I'm saying no, because I grew up in this very conservative background in Spain and, and my mother and so everybody would have had a heart attack. And I, wouldn't, I wasn't the only one. My friends and so on, they were also the same. We were the good ones. We, were the, we weren't the ones who were smoking behind the shed. You know what I mean? Those ones might be having sex with lots of boys, but we weren't those ones. We were the ones who were studying hard and being good and all that kind of stuff. Now, when she analyzes our conversation in the next paragraph, she has her own explanation of why I didn't have sex with boys, yeah? And for her, this has to be with my experiences of sexual abuse. So she thinks that I didn't. And she has this sentence at the bottom, and she says, well, I think she did not go with boys. She says, with being a paya, paya is a non-gypsy, would have been normal because of that man, and so on. Because that would have been the normal thing for her, and all that kind of stuff, yeah? And so, so she gives a very sort of... Uh, um, she gives a very anthropological explanation. It's very generalizing. She says it's, you know, she was different from the non-gypsies who do these things. And then she says because, uh, so it's about the non-gypsies and their gender mores, but it's also about the specific circumstances of my life and my psychological makeup. So she's doing anthropology very beautifully, yeah? But her account makes me extremely uncomfortable. Uh, because this is not how I think. I think her, her questions, she, I think that she's a gypsy woman obsessed with the sexuality of non-gypsy women. I've done work with gypsies for so many years, and I know they think that we non-gypsy women are all sexually promiscuous, and I know, or I think I know, that this is part of how they construct their sense of distinctiveness and superiority, moral superiority vis-a-vis the non-gypsies. So in other words... Her explanation for me, it's a misguided, ignorant explanation dominated by her stereotype, yeah? Plus, I don't like what she says about guilt and so on. I don't agree with that. So, uh, in other words, here in this excerpt and in this conversation, we're facing each other. Each one is trying to persuade the other and bring the other to her way of thinking, and we're both failing, yeah? Now... Rappaport, Jan Rappaport, she says, collaborative work, she says, requires a conscious and active commitment on the part of academics to situate indigenous interpretations on an equal footing with academic analysis and to accept that both hold significant but different truths. And Sands also says that collaboration, the role of collaboration, she says, is to point to the impossibility of fixity and closure, even for public published inscriptions, and I think in this way, yes, this is all about lack of closure and so on. Here you see these two. Uh, this agreement highlights this advantage of reciprocal work. You see uh, the complexities of this kind of cross-cultural encounter. You can create multiple points of view uh, from which to look at a, particular, at, at a particular problem, and it also turns the tables on the anthropologist, because here, as I'm concerned, she misinterprets me, but what about all the times I've misinterpreted her in print over the 22 years that I've been writing about her? Uh, but I can say this, but still the same worries about self-revelation remain when I think somebody's going to read the interpretation and be persuaded by it. You know, I think my colleagues in, a, in the Department of Anthropology, if I publish this book, will read her interpretation of my life and might be more convinced by it than, than I am, might think she's right. And uh, uh, So not only that, but this is still the problem of authority that this destabilization of my authority 
is made possible or has to be made possible by my expertise in narrating, editing her comments on my life. So I have to somehow construct a, nar- a satisfying narrative out of her interpretation or misinterpretation of my life uh, and do so in a way that convinces the publisher to publish this book. So in a way, my lack of authority is orchestrated through my authority uh, in the book once again. And seeing in black and white these statements and agreeing, not agreeing with them, enabling them, is not made any easier by this knowledge, so to speak. So um, to finish, basically, there are all these different problems that I have encountered trying to write about, trying to write with Lydia. And partly, it, like I said at the beginning, it has all been about compromises and working accepting that it's not going to be a satisfying, a satisfying project and that it's not going to be something that resolves anything in the end. Uh, something, it, it, the, only can, the only thing that can be, I think, is something that tries to work towards this ideal of non-hierarchical reciprocity and so on, but, uh, and that we work together from different standpoints. We have different motivations to collaborate. Each one of us finds the process and the final text satisfying for different reasons, uh, and so on. Uh, and so one of the ways in which I have sort of, uh, sort of worked or through this problem is to move away from this more idealistic and programmatic sort of expectations of collaboration that you find in the literature on collaboration uh, towards sort of seeing who, when she writes about friction, yeah? And she talks about uh, collaboration with friction at its heart, and she talks about collaborators in the sense of collaborators in wartime who collaborate with the enemy, yeah? And she says parties who work together may or may not have common understandings of the problem or the product. And it is the fact that collaborators are not positions in equality or sameness that is fruitful and productive. And I think that takes you part of the way, but it doesn't resolve any of the practical issues. So you can say, yes, we are, you know, but in the end you still have to sit in front of it and make practical decisions which are not resolved by acknowledging that we have different standpoints. Uh, And the last thing really is really that a lot of this, I think, is about how, like I said earlier, reciprocal work, collaborative ethnography, in particular this kind of reciprocal life history, meets these disciplinary expectations about what anthropological texts should look like. And I think that in very broad terms, if you try to write reciprocally with informants in this way, you have two options, to work within the genre, which I think it's not really possible, or to accept that you have to write, um, you have to write work which will be more awkward, less literary, and less polished, and less theoretical and probably less sophisticated, and that might not get published. And so I think that allowing for messier texts will be part of a really important for the collaborative process to be visible in ethnographic writing. But in order to do that, the audience too has to play a role in that, in in sort of opening up to that possibility. And the last thing I want to just read is a quick quotation from Karen Kaplan, who's a feminist theorist who writes about testimonial writings. And she says that the destabilizing effect of testimony, say, or of collaboration in in this case, comes through reading as well as through writing. 
that is our responsibility as critics likes, lies in opening the categories so that the process of collaboration extends to reception. And I think this is quite important. So the process of collaboration doesn't just finish with the writing of the book, it continues with the expectations of the author.